Well, thank you, Randy, for leading that time. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles to turn to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, as it's normally referred to. And we are going to be uh, winding down our series here um, tonight and next Wednesday, Lord willing. Uh, we are almost done. It's hard to believe. This was a quick study. And uh, I know some of you are like really looking forward to having this over with because it's been really awkward for you. Um, others of you are like, man, we were just getting into this, man. Isn't there more you could say about this subject? It's really important and it's really helping me a lot. Uh, it's helping our marriage a lot. I hope that's the case, that uh, you feel like you're growing and maturing in your understanding of what God's design is for marriage. And, um, but anyway, we've got uh, tonight and then we should be able to wrap this thing up uh, next Wednesday and then... I have absolutely no clue where we're going to go next, but uh, this, was, uh, this has been fun. So, in fact, uh, one of the, my favorite things to do is talk about marriage, um, not because I think I know everything about marriage. In fact, um, I'm probably the last guy that should be talking about marriage because I feel like I fall so short um, in, in, in our marriage, but I'm thankful for um, my wife of 24 years uh, in just a couple months, and you know God has really used our marriage to help us uh, grow to love Him more and to grow to love each other more, and we've had lots of experiences, lots of ministry opportunities as a married couple, and it really lends itself well to talk to other couples and to help them realize, um, guess what? No temptation has overtaken you, but that was just common to man. Uh, whatever you just said... Uh, is, is something that Kel and I have experienced in our marriage, maybe not to the same degree, maybe not the same exact situation, but the root issue is the same. And uh, this is how God has helped us work through it. Why? Because God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every trial, with every temptation, He'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. And so we just, uh, a couple weeks ago, had the privilege of, of uh, spending some time with the college students Billy has been going through a, a series on relationships with the college kids on Sunday night at his house, and uh, that's always a good way to grow your college ministry, right? Because that's like really intriguing subject for college students is relationships, because that's just kind of where they're at. Uh, it's a big thing on their radar, and so he asked us to come and, and uh, just a- answer some questions, kind of a Q&A, and he, he posed some questions to us and kind of lobbed some softballs up to us that we could hopefully hit out of the park in, in the hearts of the the college kids, but then there was, uh, they were allowed to ask some questions as well. And I think one of the best questions that we were asked by one of the college students was if marriage gets easier or harder over time. Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, how, how would you answer that? Yes is always a good answer, right? Does it get easier or harder? Yes, right? There's, there's, there's parts of it that get easier, and there's parts of it get, that they get harder. But what Kelly and I just, we both responded in, in like manner, and we said that marriage is never easy. It's never easy. So the idea that marriage gets easier, yeah, there's some things that, you know, you learn about one another and the differences between a man and a woman, and you get used to those things, and so it gets a little bit easier, right? To, you're not so shocked the first time your wife starts to cry and doesn't know why she's crying, and it freaks you out, you know, first couple weeks in your marriage, and you're like, whoa, what did I get into, right? Uh, that happens now, it's like no big deal. It's like, oh yeah, this happens, you know, every few weeks, I got this, you know, it gets easier to deal with, right, instead of trying to fix it, right, that was what I was trying to, I was trying to fix it, and realize that she don't want it fixed, she just wants to cry, and she wants you to give her a Kleenex and hug her and tell her it's going to be okay, and like, well, what am I telling you is okay, because you don't even know what you're crying about, so how can I tell you what's okay, it's going to be okay, right, so I just say it's, it's, it's general, it's going to be okay, whatever it is, it's going to be okay, um, so, but that, so that kind of stuff gets easier. So, but what, what we said, it never gets easy. It requires a lot of work, but it gets better over time. That's the issue. The issue is not easier or harder. The issue is better. It gets better, amen? And those of you that have been married for years, you know that, that it gets better over time. That's one of the greatest things about marriage, 
that God designed it to be a developing relationship that grows and matures over time. It's not like, you know, your wedding day or your wedding night is the best it's ever going to be. It's, that's not the case. It just only gets, you think, at that moment, and you're like, this is the best it could possibly be. This is like the, the climax, the ultimate in our relationship. No, that's just getting you started. And it just gets get better and better and better and better and better and better and and again, as the years go by, God intended for a husband and wife to enjoy uh, getting closer and, and, and enjoy increased intimacy together. And yet, that's not the experience of many married couples today. Some of you might be sitting here going, well, that's not my experience. <laughs> I don't know what, what planet you're living on, but that's not the planet I'm living on. I don't think it's gotten any better. In fact, I think it's gotten worse over the years. And if that is true of your marriage, you're not alone. Because I think there is a lot of marriages in that same same situation, that rather than growing closer the longer that you're married, husbands and wife often confess to growing apart the longer they're married. That's very common. Should be growing closer, but they're actually growing apart. Rather than becoming more intimate with each other, they're becoming more distant from each other. Rather than loving each other more, they're liking each other less. We joke in our house with Kel and I, every once in a while we'll get in a tiff and get sideways with one another and, and, and we won't say, we won't ask each other, you know, do you love me? We'll say, do you like me? <laughs> right? Because we, we know we love each other, right? But we might not like each other uh, at any given moment, right? Uh, there's a big difference there. But unfortunately, that's the case for a, a lot of marriages. Um, just to kind of make fun of that for a second, even though it's a sad thing, I came across this years ago, uh, this little illustration of of how marriages start out warm and intimate and, and, and they slowly grow cold and mechanical. And this is, the, this is called the seven stages of a marriage cold. You may have heard of this. The first year, your spouse gets sick and you say, sweetheart, I'm worried about you. You've got a bad sniffle. I want to put you in the hospital for a complete checkup. I know the food is lousy there, so I've arranged for your meals to be sent up from Papacitos. The second year... Listen, honey, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called Dr. Peterson. He's going to rush right over. Now let's get you to bed so you can rest. Third year. Uh, maybe you better lie down, babe. Nothing like a little rest if you're feeling bad. I'll, I'll bring, something, bring something for you to eat. Do we have any soup in the house? Fourth year. Look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the dogs and done the dishes, you better hit the sack. Fifth year. Why don't you take a couple aspirin? Sixth year, would you gargle or something instead of sitting around barking like a seal? Seventh year, for heaven's sake, stop sneezing. What are you trying to do? Give me pneumonia? (laughs) Hopefully that doesn't describe your marriage and or never will describe your marriage. Um, If you're married here tonight, I want to ask you a question. Okay, this is a very serious question. You need to be honest with your answer. Please do not answer out loud. Um, But this is the question. Are you and your spouse growing closer together or farther apart? Be honest. Are you growing closer to your spouse or farther apart from your spouse? Is your marriage feeling fresh or is it feeling stale? See, a marriage that that feels stale or gets stale or that cools off is unbiblical. Can I say that again? Okay, if a marriage cools off or is, gets stale, it, that is unbiblical. That's not the way God intended marriage to be. And the couple described here in the Song of Songs is proof of that. This is not some extraordinary couple. Like, wow, they're just like off the charts, man. Now, this is a normal couple. This is what God intended. This is kind of the model couple, the, the, the ideal couple, if you will. God's ideal. And what we're going to see here in this next section, uh, basically chapter 6, verse 4, all the way to chapter 8, verse 4, is uh, what we can do as husbands and wives to ensure that we're growing closer to our spouse and keeping our marriage fresh. Does that sound Important? 
That's unhelpful, practical, right? Because here we see a picture of a mature husband and a mature wife. Notice I didn't say perfect, right? But mature. They're a mature husband and they're a mature wife. And and we're going to hear them say and watch them do some of the same things that we've, we've already heard them say and we've already seen them do earlier in the song, but we're going to get this sense, I trust, as I did as I was studying this, you're going to get a sense tonight that these lovers are at a more mature stage in their relationship. There's some differences, there's some additions, there's some supplemental material here that, that evidences that they're growing in their relationship, they're deepening in their relationship. And that maturity that we see is, by and large, I think, the result of the many conflicts and reconciliations that they've experienced over the years. You remember uh, last time we were here uh, looking at the Song of Songs, we were back uh, in chapter uh, 5, verse 2, and we went all the way to chapter 6, verse 3, and we saw saw them getting into a a fight. And it was like right after the honeymoon, right? We said the, the honeymoon was over. And uh, we, we were watching this blissful relationship, the core, this, this, this passionate pursuit of one another and dating and courting each other and, and then the great anticipation of the wedding day and then we were there just to, to, to be a part of that wedding day and the wedding night and the wedding chamber and then, and then all of a sudden the ecstasy of the honeymoon suite changes to the reality of everyday married life. And, and that's one of the things I appreciate about the Song of Songs, it, it, it paints a realistic view of true love. It's not this pie in the sky, everything's perfect all the time, right? Because it would be very easy, I think, for us to view Solomon and the Shulamite here as the, as the perfect couple with the perfect marriage. Unless we get the false impression here that the Spirit of God infused this idealistic marriage with a dose of realism... And, and, and basically what we said last time was, listen, when you truly love someone, it doesn't mean you never argue or fight with them. Amen? <laughs> right? It's inevitable that conflict and, and friction and tension occurs even in the best marriage because even the best marriage is made up of two what? Sinners. And so marital conflicts, we said last time, are one of the main tools that God uses to make a husband and wife more committed to Him and more committed to each other. And then they serve, really marital conflicts serve to, to mature us and to strengthen and deepen us as a couple and, 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 uh, and, and to feel closer after a fight. How does that happen? Have you ever just kind of scratched your head at the irony of all that? Like how, we're, man, we're like at each other's throats here and, and hating each other's guts and like I don't want to be in the same, you know, a house with this person, let alone the same marriage, right? And, and, and yet after it's all over and you, you, you humble yourself before the Lord and you, you repent and you seek forgiveness and forgiveness is offered, it's like you're closer than you were before the thing broke out. Like, what's up with that? That's God's sweet providence and in, in, in God's wisdom, right, in marital conflict. That, that it serves to mature and strengthen and deepen a couple's love for one another. And this was the experience of Solomon and the Shulamite. And this, this exemplary couple seems to have discovered the, the secret to a lifelong romantic relationship. And here it is. You ready? You want to know the secret? You got your pen out? Okay. True love is not something you fall into but grow into. True love is not something you fall into like, oops, wow, that was nice. I'm, I'm glad I fell into that, right? We talk about falling in love, right? It's not something you fall into. It's something you grow into. In other words, if your marriage is anything like our marriage, you know, when we got married, we thought we really loved each other. And we did. But nowhere near to the degree that we love each other today, right? Why? Because love grows, something you grow into. And so what we're going to see in this sex section here is, is what, what could be called a duet of love, right? You know a duet, right? Two people get numbers singing a song, and they are both got, have a part to sing, and, and it's a duet. Well, this is a duet of love as this model husband and wife express their mutual, ongoing admiration, affection, and attraction to one another. And if we follow their example, 
We can avoid being that couple sitting at the breakfast table eating your cereal and and toast, right, with nothing to talk about and feeling like you have very little in common because you just spent the last 20 years of your marriage focusing on your kids or your career. Or worse, if we follow their example, we can avoid being that couple who feels nothing for one another. Um, after being married all those years, there's, there's just, they just feel numb. There's just nothing there. And so they figure the solution is to start all over again. And so they go out and find a new husband or wife. They trade in their, their old spouse for a newer, younger model. And we know that happens all the time in our society. The better option is to work at maintaining the romance never losing it in the first place, right? Or if need be, to work on rekindling the romance. That's, what, that's God's way. That's God's way. So the question is, what can a mature husband do to keep the romance alive? What can a mature wife do to keep the relationship fresh? Again, very simple answer to that question. And I don't mean to oversimplify um, marriage or even oversimplify what we're going to see in this text. But I would say this is what a mature husband can do to keep the romance alive. This is what a mature wife can do to keep the relationship fresh. Guess what? It's the same exact thing. They both need to never stop praising and pursuing each other. You need to never stop. Never, ever, 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 ever stop praising your spouse and pursuing your spouse. And usually the praising stops first, right? And then you stop pursuing. And when you stop pursuing, right, what happens? The grass starts looking greener on the other side of the fence. The, the relationship or the, the illustration that I always go back to that always convicts me is, is, is the comparison between, you know, my yard and my neighbor's yard. And if my yard, you know, is looking a little, you know, brown and, and, and things are kind of dying and just doesn't look that good. And I look over at my neighbor's yard, man, he's got these grasses really green. It's, it's, it's all edged really nice. And he's got all these beautiful plants and flowers and they're all in bloom and, and just everything looks perfect. What's the main difference between his yard and my yard? He's taking care of it, right? He's tending his yard. He's investing time and money and energy, right, into making his Yard, look good. And I'm not spending a whole lot of time in my yard. I'm not spending a whole lot of money on my yard. I'm not spending a whole lot of energy on my yard. What, what should I expect? And it's the same for marriage. You see some marriage flourishing and, 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 and thriving, and you're like, wow, why, why can't we be like that? Well, guess what? I guarantee you that couple is investing a lot of time and energy and even money into their relationship so that, that it will thrive and it will grow. And so what's the key? What's the key? And we could end this right now and say, let's close in prayer. Never stop praising and pursuing each other. And we're going to just see this played out here in these verses that, that, that really what it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a duet, right? Back and forth, we see the, the husband praising and pursuing his wife, and then we see the wife praising and pursuing her husband, it's a two-way street. It, it, it's not like, well, you know, the wife just waits around for the husband to get his act together. Or the, wife just, or the husband just waits around to get, for his wife to get her act together. No, they're both mutually praising one another and pursuing one another. You've heard that expression, I'm sure, that a good marriage is not a man and a, a woman coming in 50-50, Right? Like, I'm giving 50%, you're giving 50%, and we got a good marriage. No, you got to give what? 100%, and they got to give 100%, right, if you're going to have a good marriage. It's marriage math, right? 50 plus 50 doesn't equal 100. 50 plus 50 equals lame marriage, okay? 100 plus 100 equals 100, okay? It equals a marriage that, that honors the Lord uh, and satisfies you. And so let's look at this uh, text here, and let's just see them praising and pursuing one another. And again, just going to warn you ahead of time, a little spoiler alert here. You're going to feel a little awkward, a little uncomfortable again tonight because uh, this couple is very open and honest 
about how they think about one another and, and how they feel about one another. But again, it's, it's all said with the utmost integrity and purity. And so, again, I don't think God is up there on his throne cringing when we read a verse in Song of Solomon. Like, oh, I can't believe they said that in church. No, he wrote this. I think he's okay with it, okay? And we just kind of get over that, right? I think our, because we've been so um, influenced by our society and the way they've perverted God's design for sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife that we feel awkward even talking about. We feel like it's bad, it's dirty. And, and so we feel uh, like we shouldn't be saying anything. Well, it's, that's the world has done that to us. And, and, and granted, there is... Uh, some, there, is, there is a fine line, right, where certain things are just better talked about behind closed doors, right? There, there are certain things that, that, that I might say from this pulpit in a public forum, um, uh, or I should say that I might avoid saying in a public forum, but I might say in the privacy of my office in a counseling case with a husband and wife, right, when I can be more very specific to their situation, but even in the counseling case where the doors are closed, if you will, and, and there is privacy, I just think there's some things that you just don't even want to talk about that, that are just, it, listen, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. I don't need to tell you, right? That, I don't have to be that specific, right? You, you get the gist of what I'm saying, right? Uh, so there is a, a level of discretion uh, that we just need to be uh, careful about. And uh, again, we've tried to be very open and honest with our kids about this subject, we wanted them to know it's not something they need to be embarrassed or ashamed about talking about. We can talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about what the Bible says about that. And, and, and let's talk about marriage. And, and, and we just want to have an open line of communication with our kids and, and, and help them know that, uh, I guess the point is, this is, this is a, for parents, I guess. I'm off my notes here, okay, as you can tell. I'm just kind of rambling here. But if you're a parent and you're trying to figure out, man, what do I tell my kids? How much do I tell my kids? Um, let's just use this illustration, okay? Your kid's mind is like a sponge, right? And so if you don't put anything in that sponge, he goes out into the world, right? He hangs around with his, the buddies in the locker room. He goes to the movies. He listens to the music. Guess what? There's other people going to fill that sponge for him, right? For you, I should say. Now, that sponge is going to get filled up, right, with something that they're hearing, watching, seeing, being a part of. So I'd rather fill that sponge at home with the Word of God, right, speaking biblical truth about sexuality to our kids. Fill that sponge up so then when it goes out, there's nothing else that can fit into that thing because they already got it filled with the truth. Amen? And so, again, I, I want to encourage parents, you know, to, to really pray about opportunities to talk with your kids, you know, at the appropriate time, uh, in the appropriate way. And, and again, please, I hopefully don't think it's just, I'm going to have that one talk. Like it's the one talk, the birds, that, you know, that talk, the birds and the bees talk or whatever. No, what does Deuteronomy 6 say? You're just constantly talking with your kids about life and, and all about life when you wake up and when you're out and about and when you lie down and, right, when you see the billboard and you see that situation and, you know, I'll never forget when, when uh, we were going to the mall one time and we were talking to our, we'd been talking to our kids about modesty. And, you know, what, is, what does it mean to be modest? And we were talking to all of our kids about this. And Jacob, I don't remember how little he was. All I remember is getting out of the car and, and getting ready to walk into the mall. And Jacob sees this lady walking by us and he points right at her and says, Daddy, she's immodest. And I'm like, okay, I think he got it. <laughs> It was, but it was embarrassing, like, shh, 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 shh. you know, it was, uh, but it was just so cute. I mean, he was just applying his new knowledge of what it means to be modest, you know, and, and apparently she wasn't modest. And, but um, anyway, let's look at this here. Uh, again, what, what's happening here? They're, they've just been reconciled, right? They've been reconciled. They've been reunited in verses one through three. Um, and so what does Solomon do? He immediately, guys, this is so good. Okay, He immediately reassured his bride of his love by telling her what he thought about her, how no one compared to her, how she was the best of the best. Why is that so important? Because when you get sideways with your spouse, when you get sideways with your wife, guys, and, and even when you make things right, 
there's a tendency for a woman to feel what? Insecure, right? In your love for her, because maybe you said some harsh things, or you had made made did something mean, or right, and even though you said, "Hey, I forgive you," uh, or whatever, right, they still need to be reassured uh, of your love, and so that's what he does here. Notice uh, how he just uh, he just goes off again on how lovely, how beautiful he thinks she is. You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling. Terza um, was uh, the capital of the northern kingdom. Uh, when Israel was divided, it was known for its natural beauty and its gardens. And so uh, he's, he's saying, hey, you're as be- beautiful as the city of Terza, and of course as lovely as Jerusalem, which every uh, Jew felt like was the most beautiful city, right? The great city, God's city, uh, was the most beautiful city. As awesome as an army with banners. And so he likened her beauty to this army with, with banners, this spectacle to behold, this approaching army with all the banners and all the pomp and all the, all the circumstance. And in verse 5, he's so overwhelmed by, her, by the beauty of her eyes, he says, hey, look away, don't, don't look at me. <laughs> Turn your eyes away from me, for they have confused me. That's, I don't think he was saying she was cross-eyed, you know. Don't, don't look at me, you're confusing me. He was saying, hey, I, I'm just, I, I, get, uh, I get Twitter-pated, if you will, right? When you look at me, your eyes are just amazing, and I, I just don't look at me. I can't handle it. Your hair is like a flock of goats that has descended from Gilead. We've heard that before, right? Uh, you're just the, the beauty of a, of a bunch of goats coming down the hillside, kind of in a wave, uh, likens her hair to that. Uh, your teeth are like a flock of ewes, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is lost or young. In other words, she's not missing any teeth, okay? She's got a good smile, a pretty smile, got beautiful white teeth, Right? Uh, your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. I love the veil image, right? That's what we're talking about, how discreet all this stuff is, even though it's very erotic, uh, more than at least we're used to from the scriptures, right? Uh, it's very veiled. And then look at verse, verse 8. Um, again, before we get to verse 8, just notice he's, he's just repeating some of the same praises, Okay, right? We've heard these. He's just repeating some of the same things as, that he actually told her on her wedding night. On their wedding night, uh, he was letting her know that his love for her had not diminished since that first night. Um, in fact, he's saying, "I love you now as much as I did then. In fact, I even love you more now than I ever have." And so again, our love and our appreciation for our spouse should naturally grow over time. As we're going to see in this next chapter, chapter 7, he says some new things that he's never said to her before. In other words, he's growing in his appreciation for her. He's learning new things about her that he appreciates, that he wants to praise. Verse 8, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. Obviously, this could, could have been a reference to Solomon's harem in, in his younger years, right? We, we, that was one of the questions we had to ask ourselves at the very beginning. Okay, what in the world is Solomon doing right in this book? I mean, he's the last guy on the planet, the, the, the most world-renowned or most notorious polygamist who ever lived on this planet, right? Why did God choose him to write this book about marriage? What does he know about one true love, Right? The guy had a 1,000 women, right, uh, 700 wives, uh, 300 concubines. Well, some say, well, this was kind of written at the early, in, the, in his early days before he kind of went off the rails, you know, like crazy. I mean, he was always already, already, already off the rails here potentially, but before he got really crazy. Um, just so you know, I was having to convince somebody the other day. They were just having a hard time with Song of Solomon. He's like, man, I just have a hard time listening to Solomon saying this stuff. Like, what does he know? I'm like... Listen, I didn't write it. The Spirit of God wrote it. The Spirit of God wrote this. And, and how does Solomon fit into the mix? We're, we'll, you can ask God in heaven. Uh, I, I told you at the beginning, one of the things I think in the wisdom of God, okay, this could be very much like Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes was, he was basically telling everybody what a fool he'd been to, to go looking for life uh, looking for life in all the wrong places, right? And at the end, he said, hey, this is, what, this is what matters most, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. And at the end of the day, he came, he landed where he needed to land. And, and again, this could be the very same thing. At the end of the day, he landed where he needed to land. Say, hey, this is what I missed out on. 
This is, what, this is, this is really God's ideal. And oh, by the way, I, I totally was a bad example. Israelites, all right? Maybe God's saying, hey, guys, don't think your king is, is the ideal. He's not. He's a bad example. Let me, let, let me write a book um, for you that's going to show you the ideal. And, um, and so this was, I think, to show them, hey, this is what God's um, will was or is for marriage, not what their king, their sinful king had, had, had modeled for them. Um, but notice what's happening here. Verse 9, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also. And they praised her, saying, Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? And so here's this harem, um, if indeed that's what it is. All the other ladies who were in the harem by now acknowledged her superiority, that she was... She was way prettier, way better than any of them. And they praised her and they exalted her as ranking among the great beauties of God's creation. They liken her to the sun and the moon there in verse 10. So he's basically saying, listen, you are set apart. There is no one like you. And, and, and all the rest of the ladies in the harem agreed. Um. So here's Solomon praising his bride. Again, we said, how do you keep things fresh? How do you keep the romance going in your marriage? Praise, 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 praise. And then notice how she responds. Verse 11, this is the Shulamite now responding by praising Solomon in return and reassuring him that that she still loved him deeply too. And that the romance was still flourishing between them. Notice she says, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. And so she's just saying, I went down, I was just checking it out, just so you know, there's a lot of stuff blooming and blossoming here still. Um, So she's reassuring him and reaffirming her love for him and her desire to be intimate with him. And then verse 12 is, one of the most difficult verses to interpret, not just in the Song of Solomon, but the whole Bible. Commentators are like, whoa, this is like, there's as many interpretations as there are commentators <laughs> on, this, on this verse. She says, before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. You're like, well, what does that mean? How does that fit in? Some say that she was, um, kind of went off onto some um, fantasy in her mind, an imaginary uh, ride in his chariot. Uh, in Solomon's chariot. I mean, again, it's really our best guess, okay? Um, So I would say it may have been that she was imagining here Solomon driving to her in his chariot and sweeping her off her feet uh, in this romantic uh, act. You can just imagine the the hero, right, coming in, sweeping in on the scene, grabbing the 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 the, um, the maid of honor, if you will, swooping her up. He puts her by his side at, at the head of his honorage, um, and just, and just proudly shows her off to the world. Here he is riding with her in 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 his chariot, and so, you know, maybe this was just a very you know smooth move on Solomon's part, right? Really romantic move uh, to to honor her and to show, yeah, we we maybe just got done, you know, fighting there, but. I, you're still the love of my life, and I'm so proud of you, and I want to show you off to the world. Again, I'm just guessing there. If you can do better, let me know, okay? But uh, trust me, everybody was saying a bunch of different stuff. Verse 13, Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. So it, apparently, the, as they drove away, the onlookers, it could have been the daughters of Jerusalem, right? The little background singers, her girlfriends, they, they could have been saying, no, come back, come back. Um, we we want to we gaze at your beauty. And then it says, why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two companies? Now, again, another difficult verse to interpret. Um, it's, it's, it's challenging to know exactly what the Hebrew was meaning there. Um, some say that this was the dance of Mahanam, which is a city. Um, that's one translation. 
and it was maybe some marital dance that, that was associated with the city on the east side of the Jordan River. Um, whoever was speaking here, though, I think that's the point, whoever was speaking here, it appears that whatever the special dance was, um, it was inappropriate for anyone other than Solomon to watch. Why, why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two companies? I mean, what do you think this is? You're not coming to watch two, two uh, warring uh, you know, countries here, or you know, this is not like watching someone entertaining the troops. Okay, This is, this is a, 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 a private show, if you will, for, for Solomon. And so some commentators suggest here that based on what follows in chapter 7, that Solomon was describing some kind of private dance that his wife performed for his eyes only. And again, look at what he says in verse seven. How beautiful, or chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. Let me explain that, ladies, okay? That might sound offensive, but fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like the tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of beth Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, another <laughs> one we need to explain there, which faces toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Now, compared to his previous descriptions of his bride, right? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, which we just read. Um, the imagery that he used here in, in chapter 7, um, basically 1 through 9, is much bolder. It's much more intimate than what he had said to her on the wedding night. So uh, he's getting more free if you will, to, to say what he really feels about her. Um, uh, I guess he's maybe getting up more courage, right? Um, to, to express his, his, his heart and his thoughts in a, in a much more uh, intimate, sensual way. And again, this is indicative. Again, I talked about this is the growing, right? A healthy, growing, maturing marriage. Um, not only has his admiration for his wife increased, he feels much more free in how he expresses what he thinks of her. And he's actually overwhelmed by the radiance of her beauty, and he praises her from toe to head. Not head to toe, but toe to head. Um, and again, ladies, I think this is important because, you know, it would be easy to react as a, as a woman to this and go, man, this guy's just like a lustful pervert. And as always, he's thinking of, he's got a one-track mind. Always, always talking about the body, his wife's body. What's up with that? Well, what's up with that is that's the way God designed men, okay? God designed men to be, to be stimulated sexually by sight. That's why your husband, like, thinks that your body's a big deal. <laughs> because that's the way God wired him. He doesn't have a one-track mind. He's not, it's, it's not, let, again, he's just a pervert, okay? He's, he's, God wired your husband to be physically attracted to your body, and by the way, you can be thankful that he's attracted to a woman's body. That's the way God designed it. It's natural. Um, and again, based on how he's describing her, again, in a lot more intimate terms here, lends itself to the interpretation that she may have been dancing before him in some uh, see-through outfit or maybe even naked here. And again, he's describing her physical features, the curves of her hips, and, and, and were like the works of a master artist. Her navel uh, is like a round goblet, goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Um, your belly is like a heap of wheat. Again, it's not that she had a pot belly or something like a heap of wheat. That doesn't sound very complimentary, right, to, to, your, to your spouse. But the point was that... that, that um, the idea of wheat was, I mean, that was an invaluable resource to them in an agricultural community. So it's just talking about her, her great value and, and, and just it reminded him how she was food to him and drink to him. He's talking about mixed wine in her navel and, and wheat. And, and, and so he's just talking about how, how she's, you know, food and, 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 and uh, drink. 
<coughs> Excuse me. And then he goes on um, to say similar things about her breasts that he already did uh, previously about fawns and gazelles. And the neck is like a tower of ivory, just showing her, her the beauty of her neck. Her eyes like the pools of Heshbon. Uh, her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. It doesn't mean like she had a huge nose, you know. Um, I think it just talks about how, 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 how beautiful and elegant, you know, it was. It just was perfectly aligned with her face. And, and it was a compliment here. He wasn't, you know, saying, you got a huge schnoz, you know, I like that. Like that nose of yours. Um, again, these are hard things for us to relate to because we didn't live, you know, we don't live in Israel. Um, your head is like caramel. It's not talking about something you put on top of ice cream. It's talking about Mount Carmel, okay, which was one of the most beautiful mountains, is one of the most beautiful mountains even today uh, in Israel. And it's right on the coast of the, uh, of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's just, a, it's a beautiful uh, setting. So he's just talking about how, man, you're just like a mountaintop. Um, the locks of your head are like these beautiful tapestries. Um, the king is captivated by your tresses. I mean, his ha- her hair drove him crazy, is what he's essentially saying here. And then notice how this seductive scenario was just extremely alluring and absolutely riveting to this guy. It drove him nuts, and it aroused him sexually, Notice verse 7, your stature is like a palm tree, your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And so here he's just saying, hey, listen, I, I, I want you, okay? You, you've, you've created this desire in me um, to have you. And so, again, he's talking here about making love to his wife, And then notice how she responds here. It goes down smoothly for my beloved. Now here's the Shulamite talking, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. And so here's again a a mutual expression of love. Remember I said it's a duet, kind of going back and forth. This is not a one-sided deal. Um, It's not like this guy, you know, with this one-track mind and it's all he's thinking about and his wife's like, oh great, here he comes again, wants, you know, wants to be with me again. No, this is a mutual thing here. And, and, and she's expressing her desire there in the end of verse 9 to satisfy him and to bring him pleasure as, as her husband. And so they're, just, they're making love and it's enjoyable to both of them. And I think this is a good place to remind us that one of the most basic principles regarding sexual intimacy in marriage is that we should always strive to please and satisfy our spouse. Um, There's a little list of um, biblical principles that govern sex. That's one of those principles. That that it's not about you, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 3 and 4 talks about that your body is not your own, right? But, But God gave you your body to serve and to satisfy your spouse, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, what does it say? Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourself. Don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. That is a lot of application, right? Even when it comes to uh, sexual intimacy, physical intimacy between a husband and wife. So again, um, it, it's all about serving each other. And, 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 the, and the harder you try to satisfy your spouse, the more pleasure you will have. That's just the way God designed it. It's amazing, you know, that, that uh, when, it's, when it's not about you, when it, when it is about you, it's okay. When it's not about you, it's really good. It's the way God intended it to be. Verse 10, notice, I and my beloveds and his desire is for me. Does that sound familiar? Um, chapter 2, verse 16, this is one of those statements that's repeated a couple times. My beloved is mine and I am his. Uh, chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Talking about mutual possession here, right? We possess one another. But notice what she says here. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So there's a climactic nature here to this, again, the the growing, the maturing aspect of the love that I'm trying to point out here for you, that she had so grown in the security of his love for her that she could now say that his only desire was for her. I'm absolutely convinced that my husband is a one-woman man. It's not like, well, I own him and he owns me. No, I own him. (laughs) 
I own you, right? It'd be that kind of idea, I own you, right? Why? Because, you know, you're just transfixed by me. And so this, conf- this confidence that she had, um, she knew how attractive she was to him. Why? Because he told her. He showed her. And he was praising her and he was pursuing her. And so she knew what she did to the guy. And so she was very confident uh, in, in her love and his love for her. And so that motivated her to want to give herself to him willingly and eagerly and gladly. And notice what happens in verse 11. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. So she's inviting him to go away with her on a little romantic getaway. Hey, come out to the country with me. We're going to go on a little mini vacation. And I, I think this is a good reminder to us that one of the best ways to enhance or rekindle the passion in your marriage is to schedule some time away together as a couple. It just allows you to get out of the normal routine of, of life, free yourself up from the everyday stresses, the distractions, whether it's kids or work or even ministry, and, and it just kind of breaks up the dull monotony of maybe your physical intimacy and, 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 and getting away, even just for a day or two, it can invigorate and energize a marriage relationship. And I would say this, and you know, just from my own experience, one of the most important and helpful things that Kelly and I have done to cultivate our marriage over the last 24 years is, is, is doing just this, little getaways. Um, and when you have kids, right, it's hard to do that. Um, and when our kids were little, we'd say, hey, guys, we're going to go away for a couple of days and, and Grammy and Pop are going to come over and watch you. And they'd be like, no, not Grammy. No, just kidding. They didn't say that. About, it wasn't that Grammy and Papa had to watch them or you're going to go over to somebody's house and spend time with them. Uh, they were like, no, Mommy and Daddy, we don't want you to go. And, you know, it was one of those things. And we, we sat them down and said, listen, you know what? Mommy and Daddy love each other more than we love you. Just kind of messing with the kid's head, right? They're like, What? Mommy and Daddy love each other more than we love you. And guess what? God says that our relationship is more important than, than our relationship with you. And you know what? If you let us go, you're going to get a better mommy and daddy out of the deal. Because we're going to come back better, more on the same page, right? One with one another. And we're going to do a better job as your parents. And so I don't know if they understood all that. But they let us go, right? <laughs> Not that we were, it was up to them. But sometimes you have to explain that to your kids. Um, for you guys, if you've not read this book yet, I won't take the time to read it tonight uh, to you, but there's a great section in here. This is C.J. Mahaney's book, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, What Every Christian Husband Needs to Know, with a word to wives from Carolyn Mahaney. So there's a great little chapter at the end, of kind of an appendix for the wives. But uh, if you don't own this book, men, buy it tonight. Resource Center will be open? Maybe not. It will be open? We're not sure we have them though, right? Uh, this, Maybe not one for Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure that a lot of you guys already have this because we read it through one time in Iron Man. But um, I told C.J. Mahaney when I met him for the first time, uh, I, my first thing I said is, you wrote the book that I wanted to write. <laughs> and this is it. I mean, it's an outstanding book. And it's, it really isn't about sex. It's about, it's about prizing your wife and pursuing your wife. It's just how to, how to love your wife is really what it is. How to live with your wife in an understanding way, how to cherish her and honor her. And then the, the, the physical intimacy stuff is the fringe benefit. That just happens. But this is about how husbands really need to, to, to be the husbands that God wants, calls us to be. So there's a great section here about the importance of, 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 of the getaway, how to uh, re- rekindle, uh, what, is he, what do you call it, the, um, uh, how to make it happen is what he's, he's calling it. Seven surefire ways to kindle romance. And one of the things he talks about is getaways, undistracted, unhurried time together. I don't know about you, but I'm always distracted and I'm always hurried. I'm always in a hurry, right? So it's so good to be unhurried, undistracted, and just get some time where you can really focus together as a couple. Notice verse 13. You say, well, what are they doing on this getaway? Well, they brought some mandrakes. (laughs) And uh, according to Genesis 30... The story of Rebecca and Leah, mandrakes, 
uh, were a well-known aphrodisiac of some sort, a sexual stimulant of some sort. sort. They called it the, the love apple. Um, and so again, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance. Over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. Now, who's talking here? The, 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 the darling, the Shulamite, right? This is important, ladies, I think. Uh, this is the first time in the song when the woman made a direct request for physical, inti- physical intimacy with her husband. Previously, her desires had been expressed in a third person, but again, she's grown more secure in, in, in his love for her, and so what has that made her? That's, it's made her more free uh, to express her sensuality to him. And, and so, again, this is important. She was not passive in their physical relationship. She wasn't always in the role of the responder. Um, she took initiative here in the lovemaking department, she was wanting to give herself to him. One commentator, I think, said it really well. He said, the girl is taking the initiative in furthering the progress of their love life. She is being very aggressive and seductive. She cannot wait for her lover to make the next approach so that she prepares a feast for him. Supremely confident of her capacity to satisfy him, she articulates all the delight she has in store for him and describes the circumstances where she will give him her love. This kind of advanced planning must drive her lover wild with frenzied anticipation. She is creating a mental and physical environment in which their union may be consummated with the maximum intensity and minimum of inhibition. And so again, what are we talking about? How, what can a wife do, right, to keep things fresh? What can a, a man do to keep the romance alive? I mean, these are the things. You're, you're constantly praising and pursuing and praising and pursuing. She's pursuing her husband. She didn't just wait for him to pursue her, she was pursuing him. So again, there's, it's this duet, back and forth, praising one another, pursuing one another. And then verse 1, going into chapter 8, she goes on, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you, if I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. So she's continuing her pursuit here, right? We're talking about pursuing. She's pursuing him and she's expressing her desire for greater intimacy with him. And, and what she's saying is, I, I, wish you were my, I wish you were my little brother. You're like, that's weird. Okay. <laughs> well, what she's saying is that in, in ancient Israel, public displays of love and affection were, were frowned upon. They were not accepted uh, except if you were uh, a family member. And so she wished that he was her brother so that she could publicly kiss him. And it wouldn't be a big deal uh, without any embarrassment, without any shame. But, but as it is, they would always have to get a room. They'd have to find a place to, to show their intimacy. Why? Because they couldn't, they couldn't do it in public. And... Um, And again, she's talking here about taking him to his mother's or her mother's uh, home, um, uh, who used to instruct me. And then, then again, again, it gets, gets gets clearly erotic here at the end of verse two. And then, of course, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me, which is a very sensual position. And then, verse four. We've heard this before. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. And so, again, right at another moment of intimacy, you're like, whoa, 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 time out. <laughs> Too much information, right? The curtain closes, right? And she repeats the warning that she's already said twice to her girlfriends, hey, wait, true love, what? Waits, right, for the proper time, which is what? Marriage and the proper person who is your spouse, Right? I like how one commentator said it. He said, the picture described above, what we've just seen here uh, in, in chapter 7 and, and the first part of chapter 8, um, is one that is so wonderful that we're immediately attracted to it, and there is a danger of then wanting so much to experience it that we try to bring it about immediately. However, we must see that such a relationship comes about only with great patience and perseverance. So she's saying, hey, whoa, time out. 
This is for marriage. This is for husbands and wives, right? And, 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 and only after. This, this, this type of intimacy, this, this growing, mature intimacy that they're expressing here and experiencing here is, is the product of a lot of hard work. In other words, don't expect this to like get married and this is just the way it's going to be. This is after years of, of loving one another and persevering through difficult times and learning how to communicate with one another and how to forgive one another and, and, and how, to, how to praise one another and how to, how to pursue one another, right? And, and you've had fresh starts and new beginnings just when you thought that the, the embers were dying out. Um, I remember sitting by the fire one night. I think I was actually reading um, this book by C.J. Mahaney. We were reading it with, with Iron Man. And so it was in the wintertime, and I was sitting by the fire, uh, and the fire had been going, and, and uh, I had the dogs on my lap. It was just like idyllic setting. You hear him reading the man in his chair, you know, reading this book and the dogs and the fire. And all of a sudden, Kelly comes out of the bedroom, and she says, you let my fire go out. And I looked over to the fireman. I, I was. I was completely oblivious that the fire had gone out. But in light of what I was reading, I thought, well, that was an ironic statement, right? That guess what? There's a lot of wives who could blame their husbands that you let the fire go out, knucklehead. When's the last time you praised me? When's the last time you pursued me? When's the last time you invested any time, energy, money in our relationship? You let the fire go out, big boy. What are you going to do about it, right? And, but it's a two-way street, right? There's, there's plenty of husbands who could say the same thing. Is hey, babe, you let the fire go out. What happened? And again, we shouldn't hold each other's um, noses in, in this, right? Like blame one another. Like it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Listen, there's enough blame to go around, Right? And uh, so I think both, you know, you need to ask yourself, husbands, when's the last time you praised your wife? When's the last time you praised your wife? When's the last time you pursued your wife? Wives, when's the last time you praised your husband? When's the last time you pursued your husband? Maybe your marriage needed a splash of cold water in the face tonight, right? Like, oh, wow, okay, whoa. That's not what we're, what's going on in our house. <laughs> um, what can we do to rekindle the intimacy in a relationship? Let, let me just, I, I just want to balance this out real quick because I, I think sometimes we, we look at this couple and like we don't see them do much else but like be physically intimate. Like is that all they did? I mean, <laughs> didn't they have a job? Didn't they have kids? Didn't they have chores to do? Didn't they have, you know, I mean, this seems pretty, pretty, it must be nice, right? No responsibilities and, and it just, you know, lying around all day with nothing else to do but to be together. This is Tommy Nelson in his book, The Book of Romance, what Solomon says about love, sex, and intimacy. I think he gives a good balance here. He said, there should be enough passion in a marriage that both spouses would like for there to be no off-limits to their lovemaking. She had, talking about the, the Shulamite, she had an, had an around-the-clock romantic inclination toward her husband, so much so that she said that she would love to cause him to drink of spiced wine or the juice of my pomegranate. She desired, um, excuse me here, she desired that Solomon be constantly intoxicated by the thought of her sexuality. She would like to be able to seduce him at any place at any time. And this is the balance. Now, this does not mean that a couple should be experiencing a peak sexual interest 24 hours a day, every day of the year, for the rest of their marriage. Um, I remember Tommy saying one time, I went to a seminar and he was teaching this material. He said, listen, praise God that, that uh, God didn't wire men and women exactly alike because we, wouldn't have been, we, would, be, we would just be getting around to inventing the wheel. <laughs> And, and fire, because you wouldn't have got around to do anything else, right? So there's a balance in this, right? Um, 
He says it does mean that there should be times when this kind of passion is expressed. Solomon didn't spend every hour every day adoring his wife's body or making love to her. She didn't delight in love making every second of every minute. The foundation for their marriage was so strongly rooted in all the right things, however, love, tenderness, respect, affection, courtesy, appreciation, that passion readily bubbled up. He goes on, he says, a man or woman will quickly realize in marriage that much of every day is devoted to chores. There is not much romance associated with the work of taking care of a home, children, cars, or yards, unless that is you choose to add an unexpected element to a specific chore. A man once said to me um, that, that the one of the most romantic things I ever did for my wife was to clean up the dishes after a dinner party while she went and took a hot soaking bath. In other words, doing the unexpected chore as a help to a weary, overstressed spouse can be a very romantic act. But he's saying, hey, if this kind of stuff's happening all the time, um, it, then, it, then it becomes mundane. This could even become mundane, right? That's why it's, it, 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 it doesn't happen all the time. Um, and that's what makes it special. And, and I think we've got this, uh, we've been influenced by the world that this is like, should be happening all the time. I have a good pastor friend um, who said that uh, he was ministering to some college students and uh, he was teaching a relationship on, or a, a series on relationships. Every college pastor teaches on relationships, right? If they know they want to build their, their ministry, they teach on relationships. So he was t- telling me he was teaching on relationships and, and talking about, you know, purity and, and, and sexual intimacy in marriage. And he said that uh, after he was over preaching one Sunday, that there was a line of people wanting to talk to him. And so there was this one guy that stood in the line. And uh, every time he got to him and there was somebody behind him, he got back behind that person and then somebody else, and he'd get back behind that person. So obviously, this guy knew he, what he had to say was like really like personal and private. He didn't want anybody else to hear. He wanted to be the last guy in line. So finally, he was the last guy. And he, he went up to my friend. He said, he, he, he was married, by the way. His pastor was married. He says, he goes, man, what is it like to have sex every day? <laughs> and my pastor friend, like, he, he said, I have no idea. <laughs> the reality was this college kid thought, well, you look at Song of Solomon, it's like, that's all they do. No, that's not all you do. Um, and so it was kind of a funny way of, of saying, hey, dude, get, get a reality check, okay? Um, and so that's what this is a good balance is, hey, that's what makes it special, right? Um, you can't expect it happening all the time. So let me just read this last quote. This is so good. This song is God's provision to sustain loving marriages and renew loveless ones. Okay, so this is really a practical book, really helpful, right? To sustain loving marriages, renew loveless ones. That might be you, right? Um, It is his provision for increased intimacy that reflects the intimacy of Christ's love for the church. An intimacy that makes the world turn its head to view our marriages and say, so that's the gospel. I see it now. Your love, God's love, I get it. It's a great connection, right? And we know that's the connection Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 5, that that God designed marriage ultimately to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. And when our marriages right, are not what God intended them to be. There's a lack of love. There's a lack of praise. There's a lack of pursuit. There's just, it's just kind of blot, stale. It's cold. There's just this distance. There's apathy. That is not a good model of Christ in the church. Um, but if our marriages are what God intends them to be, then we are putting on display, right? Our marriages are putting on display Um, the glory of the gospel. And so there's more at stake in our marriages, guys, than just a healthy sex life, okay? It's the gospels at stake here. And and that's what we need to remember. That's way more important uh, than our physical intimacy. It's, 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 um, It's the glory of God, the glory of God. And so, you know, remember that when maybe your marriage isn't all that you wished it was, and you're thinking, well, you know what? I'm out of here. I don't need this. I don't want this. I'm not happy. Um, I don't mean to sound like I lack compassion, but tough. Do you care about God's glory? 
right? Your marriage is a, a lot, it's not about you. It's about Christ and the church. And so we got to remember that ultimately what, what our marriages represent. We just get the blessing, right, on a human level uh, of that relationship. But ultimately, it was designed to, to bring glory to, to Christ and the church. We'll come back next week and we'll wrap up with together forever, right? That God designed one man, one woman for life till death do us part. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, book. And, and while it's just kind of wild for us to be studying it, it's not normal kind of stuff that we talk about in church, but Lord, we just, we're thankful that we're on we're in safe territory because it's in your word, and so it's not off limits. Um, I just pray that we would continue to, to think of, of this book in a way that honors you and that we make application of this book in ways that, ways that honor you so that the, all the marriages, Lord, who are represented here tonight and even the future marriages with these younger people who are here not yet married, Lord, that our marriages would reflect the beauty of the gospel and uh, so others would notice and, and would would, would want to come to know Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.